The Giovanni, from its very founding, has been a clan of outsiders. A kind person may call them neutral, someone less so inclined may say opportunistic. Neither is a lie, of course, as this clan of necromancers have done their utmost to ensure that the family wealth and status would keep growing for each generation, all the while preparing for the inevitable end times. Left alone by both the Camarilla and Sabat, they have been able to amass money and resources enough to be considered one of the, if not the, wealthiest dynasty in the world. Yet their beginning was more humble. It is said that the Jovians, as they called themselves back then, were traders even as far back as the Roman Republic. Owning ships and knowing the right people in the harbors, not to mention having a loose definition of the word loyalty, was enough back then to make a tidy profit off the wars of the Romans. It is even said that the very same ships that transported goods and soldiers for Octavian, who would later rename himself as Augustus Caesar, would then ship back spies and messages to those in Rome loyal to his enemy, Mark Anthony. Indeed, the Jovians, named after Jove, the god of the sky, prospered greatly during the rise of the empire, and was one of the most influential families of that time. Even back then, they trucked with the spirit world, retrieving information invaluable to their trade from the recently deceased, or received protection against those they may have wronged. This pater, an ancient dead so powerful that even Augustus himself respects him, is said to have been the patron spirit of the family, and some even whisper that he was the first Jovian, the founding father, as it were. This pater is believed to have been the god of the underworld, as well as the father of riches, not a coincidence then that the Jovians would think him one of theirs. Of course, not even the spirit world could protect the Jovians from the fall of the Empire, and while they made it out fine enough, they had to work hard again to recover the influence they lost. During the reign of Emperor Leo III of the Byzantine Empire, it suddenly became a contested topic on whether or not one was allowed to depict God in art or monuments. The iconoclasts would condemn anyone who did this as heretics, and the Giovanni, in what is perhaps one of history's earliest cases of rebranding, decided simply to change their name to Giovanni. Similar enough to please those in the family proud in being named after a god, but distinct enough not to enrage potential clients or emperors. During the reign of Charlemagne in the 8th century, attempts were made by the Frankish ruler to invade and control most, if not all, of the Italian peninsula. He succeeded in capturing vast swaths of land, yet his son, whom he had sent to take Venice, failed in this, the Giovanni family being one of the leaders in stark opposition. Ultimately, Venice would remain free, while paying the emperor a token yearly fee, a small price to pay for the burgeoning trade republic. The capital of Venice was moved to Rialto, and along with it, so did many of the merchant families who had taken part in the conflict, the Giovanni of course being one of them. Inevitably, as Venice grew in power, so too did the heirs of the Jovians, and with their ability to dominate spirits, gone were the times where favors were asked for, they drew the attention of the Cappadocians, the clan of death. The Cappadocians were fascinated to the point of obsessive about the topic of death. 
To them, it was something that demanded study, research, and contemplation, and they approached the subject from every possible angle, debating the theology, philosophy, morality, and, of course, biology of it. Yet they were quite unable to influence or even commune with spirits, hence why they found the Giovanni such an interesting potential addition to the clan. Indeed, their antediluvian, Cappadocius himself, is said to have been the one who decided to embrace Augustus Giovanni, despite the wishes of two of his eldest childer, Japheth and Constantia, who both deeply mistrusted the Venetian. Cappadocius, however, cared little for their warnings, and in the early 11th century, the patriarch of the Giovanni was brought into their fold. Augustus was no fool, however. He had already been approached earlier by members of both Clan Ventru and Clan Toreador. Yet these politicking schemers did not interest him, not to the extent that the offer of Cappadocius did. After all, none of the others offered the blood of an antediluvian, nor were there as few caveats as what the Clan of Death proposed. Ultimately, Augustus knew that the Cappadocians were far too preoccupied with their research and philosophy to fully predict what he intended, and that suited him fine. The elders of the family debated the issue for most of a year before reaching a consensus on the matter. To them, the offer of immortality was tempting, as was the idea of a closer connection with the dead, bringing their necromancy to potentially newer and higher levels. The logistics were carefully worked out, the suitable candidates for the embrace selected, and the deed was done. Yet not all the blood Cappadocius prepared for Augustus was imbibed by his latest child. Japheth and Constantia sealed some of it away in a clay jar, speaking a powerful curse upon it. This true vessel, as it is now known, may be the reason for why the Giovanni inflict dreadful pain rather than ecstatic bliss with their bite. Another theory, held by a few, is that Lamia, the leader of a cult within the Cappadocians, was diabolized by Augustus and that she, with her dying breath, cursed his bloodline to only be able to inflict pain with their bite. This theory, of course, has several contradicting facts. For one, Lamia is said to have perished in the 18th century, many years after the Giovanni joined the Cappadocians and learning of their bite. And it is considered strange how someone who may, at most, have been a Methuselah could have cursed an entire line of kindred, a power usually reserved to Cain or the two generations who followed him. For hundreds of years after his embrace, Augustus would prove himself a model child to the antediluvian. He and those of the family embraced into the Cappadocians were more than happy to provide the skills that the rest of the clan were lacking, although they presumably kept the secret of their trade close to heart. This would not come to a surprise to many. If the Giovanni freely shared their knowledge, surely they would lose value in the eyes of the founder. Yet voices were raised on this matter, and just as before they were quieted by Cappadocius, who saw no reason to mistrust his latest child and his brood. The Crusades that would come to define much of this time also had a great impact on the Giovanni. The family, being devout Catholics, sent soldiers and sons of the line to bleed and die for their faith. But even as they did so, they did not for a second miss an opportunity to fill their coffers with gold and to profit off this massive endeavor. Whether it was supplies, soldiers, bodies returning home for burial, or even missives from the Pope himself, the Giovanni were there, skimming the top of the great war between Christianity and Islam. Ultimately, by the 14th century's end of the conflicts, they had amassed more than 10 times the wealth they had begun with. 
By this point, the Giovanni were so rich and powerful that whatever they desired, be it on the mortal or immortal side of the family, they would get. And thus they would come to crave more forbidden fruits. Even today, most of the horrible things you hear about the Giovanni are true. In fact, there is even a sick sense of pride in being the product of an incestuous relationship. Being the child of two Giovanni is so much better than being of one. And even though marriage between cousins is the most common, it is far from unheard of for children to bear or produce heirs with their parents or siblings. And that is just when it comes to the act of procreation. Any and all forms of deviancy can be found amongst the heirs of the Jovians, and it is almost always accepted. One of the driving reasons for Augustus' decision to diabolize his sire was Cappadocius' somewhat unhinged idea that he would diabolize God, and thus, in essence, become God, apotheosis. This may simply be a rationalization of Augustus's to justify the diablery. But if there is truth in this claim, then perhaps Augustus, despite his personal motivations, did the right thing. After all, if one of Cain's grandchildren would become God, what then would become of the world? Fortunately for the Giovanni, Cappadocius, and by extent the Cappadocians, were insular, not prone to embracing in great numbers, and generally poorly trained in defending themselves. While certain of them stood out as skilled warriors, the aforementioned Lamia and her bloodline for example, it was not difficult for the Giovanni to wipe away most any form of resistance against them that they could find once their patriarch had drained Cappadocius in 1444. At that point, there were enough Giovanni in the Clan of Death to handle the fallout, and unlike the Tremere and the Salubri, the Giovanni couldn't care less about Cappadocians who would not actively oppose them, choosing to hide instead. Cappadocius had, in the past, been rather severe with his descendants, so a surprising amount of Cappadocians simply went underground, not wanting any part in the new direction their clan was taking. Of course, most Giovanni assumed that they wiped out the rest of the clan, only occasionally dealing with one or another straggler who might have been roused from torpor. Other bloodlines would come out of this as well, and for a long time after there would be tension, confusion, and subtle conflicts between them and the Giovanni, but we will discuss those later on. Suffice to say, however, is that none of these bloodlines would officially declare themselves as heirs to the Cappadocians, uh, not wanting to risk the wrath of the Giovanni, instead remaining silent and biding their time. The nascent Camarilla, forming a mere 50 or so years after the Diablery of Cappadocius, had no interest in another faction of vampires joining the anarchic conflicts. Indeed, neither did the Giovanni, who had up until then rarely fought for anything where their own interests were not threatened. This war between the old and young had close to no impact on them, as the loyalty to the blood was twice enforced through family and clan. A pact was made between the sect and the clan, called the Promise of 1528, which in essence assured that the Giovanni would remain outside of kindred politics in exchange for being left alone and, in a sense, forgiven for having annihilated the majority of the Cappadocians. Not having to worry much about other kindred, the Giovanni would then focus on expanding their power base and this they did with gusto. It soon became practice in the family to embrace those with potential for success, those who had great knowledge in making profit or working others over. Each member of the clan of necromancers has a given purpose, which has made the Giovanni into a well-oiled, degenerated corporation that operates like a rotten clockwork. 
Yet, there is another goal which the clan is constantly working towards, and which few of the younger members of the clan know about. The Anziani, the elders of the clan, as well as Augustus himself, wishes to tear down the veil and usher in the endless night, essentially bringing the world of the living and the world of the dead together. With their mastery over wraiths and spirits, the Giovanni hope then that this will make them the most powerful family in the entire world. The end times are surely nigh, for the mighty antediluvian snow, whose grand vision guides my hand, and Adam Daw, whose strings pull at my very soul, are among us. Their patronage is a blessing as the time of judgment draws near, and I pray for their benevolence. The Methuselah Her Satanic Majesty Danny, reborn through fire and ice, Maximilian S. Hardcastle, who maneuvers the chess pieces of the Jihad with ease, Bambi Parsons, whose passion courses through my veins, and Socrates Johnson, the ancient scholar of lore who has seen fit to engage once more in our nightly games, are all of them blessed for their interest in the works of our council. Edward Reed, Colin Gifford, Zero Six, Stonewolf18, Jokerman, Cal Constantine, Lauren Eason, and Ian Nichols are all valued and appreciated members of our council, and their wisdom and good judgment shall be the torchlight by which we conduct our affairs. Our elders Dante the Canine, What's That Smells Its Blood, Remy Van Roy, Gaslight88, Aubrey Ayers, Non-God, June Pocciolo, and Justin S. receive our blessings for their devotion to our cause and for the example they set for the younger kindred of our sect. We would also wish to send our thanks to the Ancelle, Harry Wyckoff, Envihod, Yodan, and Alf for their help and guidance of their juniors. Finally, our stalwart neonates shall, as always, receive our appreciation for their support. And thank you for watching. Now be careful out there. For Gehenna may soon be upon us.